It is time for the final episode of the series. And I know your first instinct on hearing that might be to weep bitterly, but hold off because this time on Hormones the Inside Story, we are looking into happiness. Mood is a complicated little pickle. Obviously, there are tons of external factors that can cheer us up, or more likely these last couple of years, make us miserable. But on the inside, is there a hormonal recipe for happiness? Can certain actions or drugs ever bring us safely to our happy place and help keep us there? Well, that's what we're going to be finding out in this episode. And seeing as this is an area of popular science with a whole bunch of nonsense attached, we're going to be sorting fact from fiction while we're at it. So, big smiles, everyone. Here we go. So we know that for the mood disorders like anxiety and depression, the role of chemical transmission in in the brain is really important in terms of regulating our mood. And so I've had a long-standing interest, of course, in neurotransmitter systems, but also in hormones, because we know that hormones play a really important role as well in regulating our mood as well as our general uh, physiology. This is Professor Cathy Fernandez from the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, which is part of King's College London. Now, before we get into cuddle chemicals, happy hormones and other alliterations, there's something we need to sort out about hormones and their close counterparts, neurotransmitters. Both neurotransmitters and hormones are what we consider chemical signalling molecules. The difference between them is really where they act and how specific their releases. So with neurotransmitters, we think of those as being chemical messengers that transmit a signal from a specific part, something called a neuron, to another part of the neuronal system, the synapse, which is usually on a target cell. So this is usually something that's very specifically released and controlled over short distances, relatively speaking, within the neuronal system. That could be the central nervous system in the brain or the peripheral nervous system, because we also have nerves outside of the brain too. With hormones, this is where it's much more a longer distance that's covered. So we think of hormones as being any kind of chemical messengers that are transported to kind of distant organs rather than being uh, in a very focused, specific release. So that's essentially the difference. They both are important in signaling information. Uh, it's just really in terms of um, how, you know, the distance they cover. Neurotransmitters being kind of a short, focused region, whereas hormones are a really diffuse and uh, transmit information across kind of larger distances in our body. So does that mean when often we're talking about the hormones of happiness, people are actually referring to neurotransmitters? I think so, because, you know, we know that mood is, you know, regulated and, and controlled within the brain. But having said that, we know that the brain talks to the rest of the body and that there's also a two-way communication and there's a very important kind of balance and dynamic that occurs. So our overall physical health does relate to our mental health as well. So I think it's important to, to not forget about the periphery. So although we know it's the brain that's the driving organ, if you like, uh, that controls and regulates mood, it does receive inputs and signals and it's a two-way system uh, going out from the brain as well that goes out to the rest of our body. Hopefully you will forgive me for sneaking all this talk of neurotransmitters into an endocrinology podcast, because deep down, they are all part of the same puzzle. Cathy took me through a list of some of the most well-known mood molecules. And first up... Serotonin. So serotonin, or 5-hydroxytryptamine, 5-HT. So we know that serotonin is really important in regulating our mood, particularly things like anxiety. It plays a very important role in depression as well and that many of the antidepressants that target depression uh, alter the levels of um, serotonin in the brain. I mean, it's only one of 
of a few monoamines, as we refer to them, because chemically they're related, that play an important role. Uh, Is it the case that you can boost your serotonin with some kind of everyday activity or is it a bit more complicated than that? I mean, it's potentially a bit more complicated than that, but we, we do know there are very important kind of lifestyle activities that do influence our mood. Probably no surprise, really, but things like making sure you get enough sleep, uh, eating well and exercise. These are all, all really important lifestyle activities that can really support brain activity. Because I mentioned before, you know, the brain is an organ that needs to be looked after. It needs needs oxygen, needs nutrients, you know, it needs to have rest as well. Whether those specific activities alter serotonin specifically, or whether it's it's probably more complex than that, because it's not just serotonin, of course, in the brain. It's never simple. Now, I hope you're paying full attention to this podcast. You're not scrolling through your phone or anything like that, because next up we have... Dopamine! Dopamine, we know, plays an important role in mood, but it's it's probably most famously known for its role in reward and signalling reward mechanisms in the brain. And whether this is reward to typical daily activities, I mean, this is one of the reasons that you know our brain makes sure that we do sleep, that we do eat, that we do uh, engage in various activities. Of course, it's also the system that then is targeted by you know, addictive drugs, for example, because that's how they, they kind of signal their rewarding properties, because they activate dopamine in the brain. So we know that dopamine plays a really important role in reward, but it also does play a role in mood. Um, so we know that some antidepressants do also target dopamine as well as serotonin. So we know that it can play a role in, in certainly um, regulation of mood too. And, you know, thinking about what makes us feel good, what makes us feel happy is perhaps a bit more philosophical. But is it about feeling really good or is it about feeling calm and not stressed and not anxious? Um, but they, they, they will feed into to those kind of different behaviours together. So dopamine is is important in things like learning, reward and things like that, but not necessarily like increasing your dopamine is good for you because this can lead to addictive and problematic behaviours. Exactly, yes. And I, and I think it, that brings up a really good point about it's unfortunately not as simple as too much or too little of any of these chemicals in the brain or hormones in the body. So the whole drive for our physiology is to really maintain a stable environment. So it's something that we refer to as homeostasis. Um, so it's a dynamic process. So every time there's any kind of change, either from external influences or internal influences, the body can, you know, constantly tries to, to balance it, counter that effect. And it can over-counter it. So it can actually result in the opposite of what you want. So trying to increase dopamine, your, your system might work so hard to maintain the balance, you end up reducing the effect of dopamine. So it's very hard to just increase or decrease the amount of transmitters and have a, a good result. So you can do it, but it usually ends up tipping the balance too much the other way. The body is working like a very finely tuned system. And it, taking a drug, for example, is like throwing a bucket of water over that finely tuned system it's a bucket of chemical because in the brain we have very tiny amounts of chemical of these neurotransmitters being released and released in this controlled fashion particularly in the brain so that's why it's very hard to use drug treatments to kind of alter these levels Mm. and I suppose one person's depression and another person's depression might be caused by very very different things in the brain exactly yes so we we know there's a huge amount of individual difference in, in how our systems are set um, you know, we're probably everything is pretty much on a spectrum. Now let's give it up for a chemical that everyone knows someone who's very, very into. Endorphins. 
Yeah, so that's another yeah good example of something which is probably relates more to sort of the reward system and thinking about you know kind of stimulating that kind of excitement, that kind of high uh, that you might get, and whether that's happiness, I guess, is debatable. Endorphins can be released by things like exercise, for example, um, and these can definitely influence mood, resulting in these sort of more perhaps excited, hyper kind of states that for some people they find rewarding and therefore makes them feel happy. Often, you know, endorphins, it's kind of a, a short-term effect that occurs. So again, these are a different class of uh, chemicals that work in the brain. So having a kind of long-lasting effect on mood um, doesn't really occur with endorphins. You know, there are um, you know, lots of uh, kind of recent reports of not just exercise, but things like cold water swimming, for example, that also trigger endorphins. And, that, and it, it could be that sort of repeating those activities can continue to kind of give you those sort of mood elevating effects. And last, but by no means least, the infamous cuddle chemical itself. Oxytocin. Yeah, oxytocin or the the love hormone, I think often it gets referred to. So we know that oxytocin has been around for a long time in terms of understanding its role in physiology and how it relates to uh, various functions in the reproductive system, for example. We know it's really important uh, during pregnancy. Um, It's important for milk letting down, so for breastfeeding. And it's been thought to play a really important role in in kind of establishing bonding between mother and child, for example. So I think, you know, for a long time, people have wondered about the role of oxytocin in terms of regulating moods, particularly around social interactions and social behaviour. Oxytocin has been a hot topic in the hormone world for the last few years. It supposedly spikes when we fall in love or just when we're having sex with each other. It's released when we gaze into our dog's eyes and it's even supposed to surge en masse at weddings. In fact, you can even buy celebratory champagne flutes engraved with a chemical formula for oxytocin. For your big fat geek wedding. Reading all these stories, you'd certainly be forgiven for thinking that oxytocin truly is some kind of wonderful love drug. But what's science fact and what is science fantasy? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper with someone who spent a lot of time looking into this little chemical with a big reputation. So oxytocin is this kind of lovely hormone. It's been a kind of long love of mine, really. It's where I, where I started out back in, in uh, oh, 1977, I think I started. This is Professor Gareth Lang, a recently retired neuroendocrinologist and author of Heart of the Brain. Oxytocin, as we just heard, is important for birth and lactation, so it's fairly important for a species' survival. But ideas about oxytocin's importance go much further. It's involved in sexual arousal and sexual behaviour. In males, it's involved in the process of erection. In females, also sexual receptivity is controlled by oxytocin in many species. It's got another quite different role, which is in the control of appetite and glucose homeostasis. Uh, And the more we look into it, the more we realise that there are lots more functions of oxytocin in both the brain and the periphery. Well, so it's a real multitasker, but it's definitely referred to, especially in the media, it's, it's called uh, the cuddle chemical. So it's, it seems to be exciting people for particular roles um, in terms of the way we bond and, and socialise with each other. That's true. Uh, the first hint of that really came back in the late 1970s, the early 1980s. These experiments were done in a species called the prairie vole. Now, most mammalian species are not monogamous. Humans are an exception in that they're one of about 3% of mammalian species which do show pair bonding. But one of the other species that does is is this prairie vole. 
which is a, a, a vole species in North America. And what a number of workers in the United States showed was that this bonding behaviour does seem to be absolutely dependent upon oxytocin release into the brain. The prairie vole is a lovely little animal. They uh, are very, very sociable. They, they can spend their time in a bonded pair, cuddling side by side. They share the uh, housework, washing up and all the rest of it. Well, they actually they share the care for their young. And this bond is, is very long lasting and it's forged by the first time of uh, sexual interaction. When a boy vole meets a girl vole and uh, they engage in sex for the first time, it's a very intense experience. It lasts more or less of 36, 48 hours, pretty well continuous copulation. And this has interesting and persistent effects on the brains of both the males and the females. Now, what we did know already was that in sexual behavior also causes the stimulation of oxytocin release into the blood and to the brain. So the, the workers in, in the States, Tom Insel and others, they showed that blocking this blocks the formation of this bond. So that was the key bit of information, tying oxytocin actions in the brain into what you call social or affiliative behavior. And that caused a huge amount of excitement. It is a delightful tale of prairie vole romance, to be sure. But things do get a bit more murky when we try and extrapolate from vole meets vole to our own human behaviors. There are also big species differences in where the receptors for oxytocin, because oxytocin, when it's released in the brain, it acts on, on receptors in particular parts of the brain, and there are big differences from one species to another on where those receptors are located. Though even in closely related species, the prairie vole is a monogamous species, but there's a closely related species uh, called the meadow vole, uh, and another one called the montane vole, and they are promiscuous, and they differ not in the oxytocin systems, but in where the oxytocin receptors are located. And that does seem to be critical. And a lot of those studies that claim to measure oxytocin release in humans, well, to put it politely, Gareth is not impressed. Well, there's a lot of wishful thinking there. It is really difficult to measure uh, oxytocin release. And uh, in a lot of these studies, it's just basically assumed that there's oxytocin release without kind of uh, any direct evidence for it. It's not easy to measure oxytocin release. There's very, very few studies uh, done in, in humans because it's very invasive, it's, it's, very, it's painful, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. Is there a link between oxytocin, suspected or with evidence behind it, and mood and like your general happiness? There, uh, a lot of it is probably wishful thinking. There isn't really very much direct evidence. In, in animal studies, we do know that oxytocin, in some species anyway, where it's been studied, then oxytocin does have roles in what you might call uh, alleviating stress. But perhaps there is one way oxytocin can be the key to human happiness. What we do again know that if you look at animals that don't produce oxytocin, uh, and these are transgenic rats or transgenic mice that uh, lack oxytocin, then one of the, the, the things is that they have got what are called defects in social behaviour. And certainly mice without oxytocin Actually, one of the problems is, is that they have is that they can't remember knowing another mouse. They, 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 they lose that kind of social memory. If, you're, if you meet a stranger, and if you're a rat and you meet a strange rat, then you're wary. Right? In order to, to make a, an, a connection with that person, 
you have to break down an instinctive fear. So anything that will reduce fear and anxiety will tend to favour social interactions. And so that is possibly why uh, oxytocin and social behaviour and oxytocin and bonding, what makes sense of that, if you like, that oxytocin is anti-stress, anti-anxiolytic, makes it easier to form connections with other people. So we can still legitimately call oxytocin the cuddle chemical, but don't believe everything you read about it. In fact, that's the problem with most of this happy hormone science. It's mostly happy hormone hype. Well, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, just a, a quick glance on the internet, if you put in happiness in hormones, you, you end up with a whole lot of, obviously, commercial websites trying to sell you various sort of supplements of, of different sorts. But also, it tends to be a focus very much on neurotransmitters, on central nervous system. This is Andrew Steptoe, Professor of Psychology and Epidemiology at University College London, where he's head of the Department of Behavioural Science. So the work on hormones is really comes much more from a, a, a more rigorous scientific uh, uh, background where um, the amount of evidence is, is somewhat limited uh, and it's limited in part by the sorts of things that we can measure. So the main hormone that has really been studied in relation to well-being is cortisol. And I suppose that's not a complete surprise because we know that cortisol is related to depression. Uh, it's also, of course, a stress hormone increased in times of stress. And so you might expect the reverse to be the case, the kind of reciprocal association that people with uh, greater levels of well-being might have lower cortisol levels. That's right. We've got one final surprise hormone for you. Lucky you. And it's one that we keep returning to. Cortisol. The evidence is really of two sorts. One is uh, essentially correlational evidence relating cortisol levels with levels of well-being, be it happiness or purpose in life or other aspects of well-being. And the other uh, type of evidence comes from experimental studies where uh, we put people under stress, under controlled conditions, and then see whether people who have high levels of well-being are more or less responsive than those who do not have high levels of well-being. And over the last 20 years or so, it's emerged from large epidemiological studies, which uh, are studies of very large populations, that if you measure positive well-being, uh, in a large population, and then you follow people up over time, those people who are happier or enjoy their lives more or have stronger purpose in life seem to be at lower risk for the development of many health conditions, particularly cardiovascular conditions, and indeed among older people have longer survival. And this has been a very obviously interesting and exciting uh, notion, but um, what this has led to is try to understand what the mechanisms are. And so cortisol, or lower level of cortisol, could be part of that mechanism linking uh, higher positive well-being with uh, better survival. So there's, there's, there's this link, and we're, we're starting to learn more about it. Do you think that there ever might be a way to sort of pharmaceutically improve your mood by by dampening down cortisol responses? Well, that's indeed the critical question because a lot of this work is cross-sectional and so, you know, cause and effect is very difficult to, uh, to distinguish. Uh, what people have tried to do so far is to try to change well-being and then see what happens to cortisol. Um, and 
there's a certain amount of evidence that if you do, you know, do things which improve well-being, you may um, reduce cortisol levels, showing that sort of causal link. The trouble is we're not actually very good at improving people's well-being, at least not for long time periods, and we can do it for short time periods in an experimental setting. As for the other side of it, whether if you change the hormone levels, uh, you might be able to improve mood, I think the the evidence is still very slender in in that area. Uh, it, it it is difficult, and the other thing to remember, as far as health and well-being is concerned, is that uh, hormones don't work in isolation. And in particular, they work very closely with immune processes. And it could be that some of those immune processes are just as important as the hormones. And so, looking carefully at that link, I think is is very important. I mean, if you could invent a nasal spray that makes you happy, like I can imagine that would be quite the popular <laughs> intervention. Well, and if we knew how to make people happier in general, uh, I wouldn't be spending my time sitting here. I would be uh, on a beach somewhere with uh, <laughs> millions of pounds, I'm sure. Maybe that's the secret. <laughs> I think the other thing to, to think about is whether, even if you see these associations, whether a supplement is going to be helpful because we know that supplements work very differently from the kind of naturally occurring hormones and other substances because the, the metabolism is uh, and, and how they get into the bloodstream may be rather different from what happens in under the natural circumstances. And so the impact of uh, supplementing any of these things is, is going to be not obvious as a way. It has to be tested out and, uh, you know, the, the simple model such and such a hormone is too high or too low, and so we can just supplement it and, and redress the balance. It just doesn't seem to operate in that kind of way. So are there any science-backed ways to improve our moods? Asking for a friend? The best things that you can do for your mood and for your feelings of happiness are the harder things that people never want to do, which is the lifestyle changes. Thinking about you know, how much exercise you take, how much sleep you get, what you're eating, making sure you're drinking plenty of water, you know, avoiding having too much of things like alcohol and <laughs> other drugs because you know that's not necessarily good for our health. But also thinking about you know how we interact with each other as well. And given the last 18 months or so of the pandemic, you know, social isolation has been a real challenge, I think, for many people. And we know that we are a social species. Humans are social, and that it's an important part of probably what does make us happy. And this is where you know. Hormones like oxytocin, for example, may play a really important role because we know that they're released and uh, influence our mood from social interactions and social situations. And so I think, you know, that's something that has been really difficult and perhaps people appreciate more how important it is to have close relationships or interactions with your friends and your family. But even just with, you know, everyday people, I guess, on the street, because it is something that, you know, we know is rewarding uh, and does you know, trigger changes in chemicals like 5-HT or serotonin and dopamine and, and certainly oxytocin. Um, and so that's not probably something we would have necessarily thought of before as an life, important lifestyle uh, activity, having, you know, good uh, social interaction. But I think that is something more than ever we realise how important it is, you know, potentially as important as having, you know, making sure you're sleeping enough and getting exercise. To summarise... So-called happiness hormones aren't always hormones and they're not always that closely linked to happiness. Our moods are a complicated hodgepodge of these chemicals and, of course, our environment. Drugs can be useful for some people with anxiety or depression, but they don't work for everyone and we don't always know how they work. There is truth to the boring basics, sleep, nutrition, exercise. And especially after the last couple of years, 
a few more cuddles wouldn't go amiss. Thank you so much to our guests, Kathy Fernandez, Gareth Leng, and Andrew Steptoe. This was the final episode of the season. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating and a review and tell all your friends. Of course, subscribe and follow for any future series we get to make. This was a first Create the Media production for the Society for Endocrinology. Katani is the executive producer and special thanks to Lindsay Forsyth and Natasha Bishop. They were produced and presented by me, Georgia Mills, and thank you very much for listening. 